I remember hearing the news before I'd seen the movie, and I still remember the way I heard the news. I was in college, and I woke up for an early class, and on the radio, Boston's institution, Robert J. Lertzema, led his newscast with, Mozart won eight Oscars last night. Amadeus, it was playing in an art house, and when I was in college, you felt pretty sophisticated going to see a movie at the trendy cinema. Well, I've probably seen it more than a dozen more times over the years, including a couple of weeks ago again. And I always come away from the movie with a deeper fondness for it and a deeper appreciation of Mozart's music. It is one of my favorite films ever, and I think it's also a great movie in its own right. The movies we love are not always the greatest, right? But in this case, I'd put Amadeus way up there on my top ten list and any top ten list. Fantastic performances. Visually, it's stunning. And has any movie about music used the music so memorably and so masterfully? Now, I don't for a minute think of it as an accurate biography, as some sort of documentary film. It's fable. It's a parable about talent and rivalry and about family expectations and death. Back in 1856, at the time of the Mozart centennial, George Bernard Shaw wrote, We do not hear much of Mozart, and what we do hear goes far to destroy his reputation. A perfunctory screening of the movie might show a dissolute Mozart and a conniving Salieri. Remember the tagline on the ads and posters? Everything you've heard is true. Tonight, I'm here to offer an appreciation of the movie Amadeus, and I hope to make the case that it's very true, even if some of Amadeus, a large part of it, in fact, is not really true. I think the film conveys some bigger truths about Mozart, his talent, his family, his rival Salieri, and his time. Our relationships with our parents, they're always complex and they likely determine much of who we are and how we go about in the world. That truism varies by degree, person to person. But when we're dealing with Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, I think it's safe to say we're dealing with the long shadow of his father, Leopold Mozart. As the biographer Maynard Solomon puts it, Leopold brought the child Mozart to bear against his mature self. When Mozart's talent and vision took him beyond the familiarity of Salzburg, it stretched Leopold's understanding. What were comfortable confines of success for Leopold were just confining for Wolfgang. Leopold was obsessive and Mozart was irrepressible. After Mozart left his father's sphere of influence, their relationship became strained. It is that strained complexity that the movie Amadeus captures so successfully for me. The timeline is compressed and perhaps the situations are contrived, but the tension is real. Mozart was an independent genius who, at times, did lack personal and social responsibility, and Leopold was a father who wanted to see his son succeed, albeit in his pretty narrow, limited sort of success. A steady job like his working for the Prince Archbishop of Salzburg. 
Time and time again, Leopold recalled Mozart's childhood and failed to understand the scope of his son's mature genius. And as we know from the letters back and forth, Leopold was a nag, writing letter after letter with lines like, The present alone engulfs you completely and sweeps you off your feet. And, My son, you are hot-tempered and impulsive in all your ways. Don't you have a maid? Oh, no. We could if we wanted, but Stanzi wouldn't hear of it. She insists on doing everything herself. How was your uh, financial situation? Couldn't be better. That's not what I hear. What do you mean? It's wonderful. Really, it's, 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 it's marvelous. People love me here. They say you have debts. Who? Who says that? That's a malicious lie. Do you have pupils? I don't want pupils. They get in the way. I, I have to have time for composition. Composition doesn't pay. You know that. That one will. What's that? It's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> secret? You don't have secrets for me. No. No, 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 no. No, 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 please. Please, I, I, I don't want you to see it. I don't want anyone to see it. But you are going to be so proud of me, Papa. It's going to be the best thing that I've ever done. Leopold Mozart died in 1787, when his son, Wolfgang Amadeus, was enjoying the pinnacle of his success in Vienna. And while it has dramatic punch in the movie, I think it is just too fanciful that Leopold continues to haunt Wolfgang that specifically after his death. But I think that spectral presence, which Salieri literally embodies in a costume, is a nice memorable metaphor for the long, complicated shadow Leopold cast over Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And I think that's one example of the real truth in the film's depiction of the difficult but affectionate relationship between Leopold and Wolfgang. very effective frame around the story of Amadeus is the near-death confession of Salieri of his jealousy, treachery, and the murder of Mozart. This is a great dramatic device, and at its heart, it's not entirely original. There were rumors of Salieri poisoning Mozart, and they go back to shortly after Mozart's death. Salieri is reported to have denied them, but another time confessed to the killing of the younger composer during an illness late in his life. By the time Pushkin developed the idea in the 19th century for a play, it had already been a recurring theme. And in Amadeus, it is the centerpiece of Peter Schaffer's play and film. It is so well done and so compelling, we have to be careful not to take it as fact, because it isn't. Salieri was jealous of Mozart, true, and the more pious, obedient man had to be flummoxed at the looser, more arrogant behavior of the man he called a giggling, dirty-minded creature a vulgar child. First, there's that laugh. 
that supposedly Mozartian laugh that tormented Salieri. It was done to perfection by actor Tom Hulse. It is a great movie invention, an effervescent confection, but it is caricature. It's a pretty effective one, though. Sure, there are real references to Mozart's bawdiness all throughout his letters and his preference for puns and silliness. Mozart's dress was stylish, even foppish at times, though probably not much more so than the style-conscious courtiers like Salieri. So again, I turn to Maynard Sullivan for wisdom on this aspect of Mozart's behavior. He rejects the idea, a myth he calls it, of Mozart the eternal child. He credits Mozart's admittedly outrageous behavior as a nose-thumbing of anyone who assumed he was still that gifted child sensation on tour with his father, a fairground attraction into his adulthood. As Maynard puts it, you regard me as a child, then I'm a child. (laughs) This behavior no doubt came as a shock to Salieri, who was steeped in the courtly manners of the time. And like anyone at court, Antonio was not above a bit of one-upmanship and even treachery to keep this exceptionally gifted newcomer at arm's length from the emperor while he was in the inner circle. That was just Duriger, and certainly still is in many a sales office, university academic department, and alas, even radio station today. But the historical record shows the two were at times cordial colleagues and sometimes mutual admirers. Now, when you go looking for treachery and poison and murder of Mozart by Salieri, you come up with some pretty lurid stuff. And it makes the creative licenses of Pushkin and Schaffer pale in comparison. No poison, no smoking gun for a murder drama, but the medical record of what killed Mozart would make your hair stand on end, send shivers up your spine and curdle milk, strep infection, renal failure, cerebral hemorrhage, terminal bronchopneumonia, and add to that the hemorrhaging and abdominal pain that come with henoch schönlein syndrome, and you have a man who was gravely sick in his final months. A complete list of the signs and symptoms here would take another few minutes. If you should require more detail, H.C. Robbins Landon's excellent study, 1791, Mozart's last year, outlines the theories and the facts. His chapter, The Final Illness, is a catalog of misery through historical and contemporary accounts. Under those circumstances, it is no wonder that in his delirium, Mozart himself fantasized that he had been poisoned. When you consider the output of the man in his final year or so, it is no wonder that Salieri, or anyone alive for that matter, would not marvel at and even be insanely jealous of the productivity, not to mention the quality. And those circumstances have only added to the myth. All right, I have to admit, my favorite sequence of the movie is perhaps the most fictional. I've always been riveted by the scene of a sickened Mozart dictating his brilliant requiem to Salieri, who believes he's driving Mozart to the very need for his own requiem. The truth of the matter is, Salieri's pen can barely keep up with the quicksilver brilliance from Mozart's mind. Do you have it? Go too fast. Do you have it? First bassoon, tenor, trombone, what? With the tenors. Identical? Of course. The instruments doubling the voices. Now, trumpets and timpani, trumpets and D. No, no. Listen to me. I don't understand. Listen. Trumpets and D, tonic and dominant, first and third beats. 
It goes with the harmony. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, I understand. Yes, yes. And that's all. No, no. Not for the real fire. Strings in unison. Ostinato on A, like this. Next measure is rising. You have it. Yes, yes, yes. I think so. It's wonderful. Yes, 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 yes. Go on. Voca me. We get a glimpse here of how easily Mozart can conceive of musical complexity. As fanciful as the scene is, it is based in some reality. From all accounts, music did just flow out of Mozart, as he himself said, like a sow piddles. C major. Sopranos and altos and thirds. Altos on C, sopranos above. Sopranos up to F on on the second vocal. Yes. 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 And on dictus. Yes. And underneath, just violins, arpeggios. <laughs> Descending scale in eighth notes, and then back to the ostinato again, and that's it. Do you have it? Go too fast. Do you have it? Go too fast. One moment, please. One moment. Yes. Good. Show me the whole thing from the beginning. and complexity confounded Salieri, and they illustrate one of the central themes of the movie. How could that vulgar child envision and execute such sublime creations when the diligent, dutiful Salieri himself could not rise to such heights? It's the perfect dramatic fulcrum for the main conflict of the play and the movie, even though Mozart was so much more than a vulgar child, and yes, Salieri had not poisoned him nor did he commission the Requiem in disguise. All not true. But the truth of the conflict makes great drama. And the inventive convention also illustrates Mozart's fluid genius and Salieri's jealousy for his gifts. So back to Shaw again, and why not? Perhaps Salieri could take some solace from what else Shaw said about Mozart. Everyone appears a sentimental, hysterical bungler in comparison when anything brings his finest work back to me. Can we really know what it was like for Mozart to compose music? Remember, Mozart said it was all in his noodle, and the rest is scribbling. That's probably an impossible wish, and a really difficult task for the dramatist and the movie maker. But the Requiem scene is an imaginative glimpse at what might have been going through Mozart's creative mind as he suffered from that panoply of illness.
I love to imagine what it would have been like to be in the audience for the premiere of Marriage of Figaro, or at any of the Academy concerts while Mozart conducted the premieres of his own piano concerti from the keyboard. Amadeus gives me permission to dream away, and a vivid template for those dreams. In its gorgeous, stylized way, I can't imagine a better glimpse of what life would have been like for Mozart in Vienna. That's so, even though most of the film was shot in Prague, including the ornate Thiel Theater Don Giovanni was first performed in. Peter Schaffer said it gave the crew a miraculous feeling of time being reclaimed from oblivion. Sure, there are many factual untruths in Schaffer and Foreman's fable, but the bigger truths that are there outweigh them for me. While the film does have a good smattering of biographical details and useful impressions, the truth lies in what even the most fanciful moments tell us about the work of creating art and forging one's voice and vision in the world. Sure, Mozart was in some ways haunted by his father and conflicted over pleasing him in his own way. Salieri had a sweet tooth and was indeed jealous of Mozart, and jealous that despite his duty in industry, he didn't get Mozart's effortless talent. Mozart and his wife Constanza overspent, but we get a hint in the film of the shrewd businesswoman that Stanzi would be after Wolfgang's death. And Mozart was working, always working, thank God. Playwright Peter Schaffer and director Milos Forman have taken the raw material of the facts of the time and constructed an enduring first-rate piece of art about father and son, inspiration and industry, jealousy and genius. It's a genius that transcends the time and place and limitations of the court of Joseph II, the scrutiny of a fussing father, or even the paradoxical personality and illnesses of the man. The man about whom no less than Haydn movingly said, I tell you that your son is the greatest composer known to me, either in person or by name. And Haydn said those words to Mozart's father. <laughs> 